agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love the government of the government love the government. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. And today I am joined by a special guest, Seth David Radwell. He is a business executive both in books, including the electronic side of Scholastic, and a former CEO of the skincare business Proactive Company. He has an MA in public policy from Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. And Seth is joining us today to discuss his upcoming book, American Schism, coming out on June 29 by Greenleaf Book Group Press. Seth, welcome to The Politics Guys. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's really a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And I wanted to start the show by saying how much I really enjoyed reading your book, um, you know, you don't always get to choose uh, who you're reading. I read a lot of things and some things you love and something. But I was really excited to be reading your book. I thought you had just kind of really an engaging style. I appreciated that. Before we get to that question, let's take a quick word from our sponsors. And so I wanted to start by putting your book in a nutshell. I'm going to kind of reverse the roles. I'm going to try to put your book in a nutshell and then you be the professor and critique me. See how well that I do and tell me where I go wrong. So it seems that American schism is about the current political divisions in the United States, and you think they're traced back to the Enlightenment. Specifically, your argument in the American schism is that it's the Enlightenment battle between what you label as the moderate and radical forces of the Enlightenment. And then you kind of bring in this third force, the counter-Enlightenment. And so you trace the history of this disagreement. And today in the United States, you think that our true rational debate is at, in America is actually connected to these early battles of intellectual thought embedded in the Enlightenment between these two groups, the moderate uh, and the radicals. And so really our only hope to move forward is to kind of exit our thought bubbles and return to an agreement on, ra- on rationality and to take up the questions of policy. Okay, so Seth, how would you grade me? Did I get your book pretty close? And what did I leave out? What, what should we include in there? I mean, it actually was terrific, Trey. And I, and I think it, it was a great uh, nutshell summary. What the, what the Sometimes the way I term it is, you know, we all talk today about how we're, many of us are living in our own, you know, bubbles of, of reality and, uh, or, or political bubbles, if you will. And I think that is true. But, but we're also living in what I call a time bubble. In other words, we, we assume that all the debates that we have today, as crazy as they've become, are kind of frozen right now, while I am, I'm pretty convinced they have antecedents and important roots in what actually uh, created the founding of our country, going back to the Enlightenment. And that's why, to me, this investigative tracing back, I think, is so important in understanding and better uh, appreciating where we are today. So one of the things I'm always curious to, to push an author on, Seth, is to say, you know, writing a book of this size, writing a book of this scope, it's just a big investment. As a matter of fact, uh, earlier you were telling me uh, before the show aired that it was a two and a half year process. And as a scholar, I understand that writing process. It's what was the impetus for you to undertake this project, what, what drove you uh, to writing uh, the American Schism? Yeah, I mean, it's it's it has become a, 
almost an obsession and a labor of love and research. I've read hundreds of, of books and hundreds of articles as, as a process to, to get to this point of being able to pull together this book. Well, here's what I would say. It's, it's actually interesting in the sense that, you know, I have roots in public policy because that's where I, what I studied in, in graduate school. And I've always, my whole, my whole life, I've been fascinated by kind of the public civic arena. But mo I built my career mostly in business over the last, you know, 30 years. And I've run many successful consumer products companies. And so most of my, uh, a lot of my pr professional sphere are people who run businesses or been in marketing. And to go back to your question, over the last couple of years, it was amazing to me, two things happened. One was I noticed that most of my professional colleagues, be, the, be they traditional Republicans or Democrats, didn't matter. They were all were uncomfortable. They stopped wanting to talk about politics. It became a third rail to, to a degree that it had never been before. That was, that was one thing I noticed. But probably more painful to me was the apparent disappearance of truth in, in, in the world. This notion of objective truth no longer being uh, an appreciable uh, value that everybody seemed to have their own truths about it, almost everything. I I call it in the book this lay postmodernism because you know the the postmodern uh, philosophy of the past fifty years has been about the fluidity of of things and the lack of objective truth. But I think it had become it had gone to a new level. So so here's what would happen: I would talk to friends, traditional. You know, Republicans would often not want to get into it because they were torn about whether they were Trumpian or not. And my Democratic friends felt mostly, in, you know, incapable of dealing with what was happening to our republic and would put their head in the sand and not want to deal with it. And so, so, to, so the answer to your question is I felt that I really wanted to take this on because I felt like we had to leaders, leaders of, of whatever sector, whether it's public or private, need to address this, need to reestablish uh, a respectful way of talking to each other about civic issues. And it seemed to me that that had become entirely crowded out over the last couple of years. Again, not so not only in the in the Trump years, but even before, but it had it had gone to a level where, you know, respectful dialogue grounded in reason had been crowded out by this this concept of kind of political identity uh, shouting on both the left and the right. And so, you know, what I was committed to do was, again, to do this investigative tracing of where our differences come from without um, necessarily uh, coming from either a left or right perspective, but an historical one. I really loved that. And I'm glad you start there because I think that really comes out at the beginning of, uh, of your book. As a matter of fact, to kind of put my own bias out there, because one of the things we do in the politics, guys, is, is try to have those rational disagreements. And one of the ways we do that is be by being upfront about uh, our starting points. So one of the things I was really happy to see too, uh, intellectually was your defense of the Enlightenment. I, I saw that. I don't think we get enough of that uh, in contemporary uh, American politics or American culture. And I especially liked your pushbacks, as you were even kind of indicating there, against postmodernism and even later some Marxist critiques of the Enlightenment. As a matter of fact, I'll be open here. Uh, my son's middle name, my middle son's name is Samuel Locke. 
Uh, and so he's Samuel after the Christian Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures. But he's Locke actually after John Locke because Locke's sure. writing is one of the big reasons I'm a political scientist. So you might imagine I'm a little biased about the importance of the Enlightenment uh, and rationality. So what I'd like you to kind of start to do is, you know, I, I, I'm easy on this front, but make a defense for that because today the Enlightenment doesn't have as many defenders. So, Right. Well, that's, that's such a – I'm so glad you brought that up, Trey, because – to me, it's fascinating. First of all, if you if you look at the news today or watch what's going on in the world, it, it seems that every day we're on the brink of catastrophe. There's always some doomsday thing happening, whether it's COVID or or climate change or crime. Um, but, you know, I think to really understand why the Enlightenment is so vital for for the modern society, you have to take a little bit of a longer term perspective. So uh, in the, like, let's let's look in the past 200 years, human civilization has made more progress in prosperity than in the prior 2000 years. And that's that's based on some good objective facts. That's not that's not an opinion. For example, in the last 200 years, life expectancy has gone from 31 years to over 70 years. So we're living much longer. 200 years ago, one in five children born did not survive to age five. Today, almost all do. 200 years ago, four-fifths of the world lived in poverty. Today, one-fifth of the world does. So, so when you look at the lo slightly longer-term perspective, we've made tremendous prosperity uh, flourish in the human civilization. Now, much of this is due, in, in my view, to the Enlightenment, to this new way of thinking that embraced the human potential for rational understanding, for empirical observation, all the things that came out of the Enlightenment. So, so to answer, I think the Enlightenment is so vital to modern society that the numbers speak for themselves. When you look at the static, stat, and I'm not just talking about in the U.S., those are statistics all over the globe, uh, about four-fifths of the world living in poverty 200 years ago versus one-fifth today. So there's been tremendous progress in, in human prosperity because of the Enlightenment. Now, What's happened in the last 50 years is there's been this critique of the Enlightenment because it was mostly uh, uh, put forth by, uh, you know, white European males. <laughs> and that's true. That, that's definitely uh, an important thing to take into account, that there was a that there may have been certain perspectives. And this is true of all history, of course. You know, history is written by the winners. So the Enlightenment has been under assault really since if, if over 50 years. It used to be. Uh, 50, 60 years ago, back in the ninth, before the 1950s, it was generally recognized that the Enlightenment was what was was uh, behind the forming of the United States, the French Revolution. I mean, most of the major creations of modern society were due to the Enlightenment. Then, 50 years ago, the Enlightenment became under assault by by what we now call postmodernism. This notion that it it was a very that it, the Enlightenment only affected you know, certain aspects of society and that not everybody read Locke like you did or, or I did. And, you know, I think the, the important point of the postmodern movement was the recognition that it was important to incorporate other perspectives into historical philosophy or historical thinking. And that's certainly true. And whether those are, uh, you know, uh, other perspectives based on culture or race or gender, all of that is important. But what I think ended up happening over the last 60 years is that we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. 
<laughs> of course, of course, the Enlightenment was mostly um, influenced by people, just learned people in society at that time, which were mostly not all, but mostly men. But that doesn't mean that w what they worked on it and put forth wasn't fundamentally, you know, a, a revolutionary notion of human progress based on rational rationality and reason. I mean, the, the Enlightenment was an embrace of the human potential after thousands of years of that not being a focus where most of the most of the realm was in the re spiritual or religious world. So so I hope that summarizes why I think the Enlightenment is so important. And there's no question in my mind, I think it's un un not debatable, that it was the Enlightenment that motivated our founders, both those those for, that I describe on the radical side and on the moderate side. And I want to get to that radical and moderate in a minute, but there was a couple of things there that I thought were uh, important about your response. And one of those is, is you kind of talk about the origins of the Enlightenment and, you know, you can have a critique of that without throwing all of it out. And even at the time, you know, one of the elements that it, it was important for me, uh, authors such as Mary Wollstonecraft, who right. effectively argued that the Enlightenment uh, should be expanded to women. In other words, that it, it hadn't happened at the time. Yeah. I had wondered, you know, and you have this very kind of detailed work, but there are some other Enlightenment kind of outsiders like Wollstonecraft. Was there a reason for not including some of those kinds of early Enlightenment non-white males who were early pushing for that? Because it kind of seems to fit into your argument. It does. I, and in fact, I, I do mention Wilsoncraft at a couple of points, but it's certainly not a focus. I, like another, another example that I was thinking about going into more detail in the book was Sophie Condorcet, mm. who was the wife of Condorcet, the, the French uh, radical. So they, they, there was certainly women who were involved. And, and over the course of the I think I discussed in the book that, you know, over the course of the, the, the Second Great Awakening, women, uh, one of the benefits of that movement although it was it was fundamentally uh, uh, spiritual, was that women beca became to have more of a voice in in the American political sphere. So I, I think to, to answer your question, though, why I mean, I didn't have the purpose of the book wasn't a detailed review of philosophy. I was trying to use a couple of the key leaders of the moderate and radical movements to articulate for the for the layperson, for the, not for not for the professional uh, philosopher or historian, what the differences between those schools were. So it was natural that I kind of, as examples, I used kind of the the what I would call the most well known and and um, th those voices that contributed the most. So on the moderate side, those would be the you know Locke and Rousseau. Um, you know, and and John Adams and Alexander Hamilton, and on the radical side, um, a lot of the French radicals and people like Thomas Paine and Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. And you know, that's always a difficult line to walk. I mean, you know, when you're when you're trying to both write something that is intellectual and thoughtful, but you're simultaneously trying to not write just the entire <laughs> academic tome. You know, that's right. a, that, that, that is a, that's a tough place to be. And I, I do want to say there that I thought that you walked that line well. I was just a little curious about some of those others who might have made that broader point you were making. Now, another one that I want to want to hit it here is I thought one of, and you start off with it, and that's why I wanted to ask a question early about it. Early on, you make kind of this bold prescription, and you're going to repeat that. You start with it, and then later in your conclusion, you come back to it. 
is this idea that the only hope for our uh, for kind of rectifying the schism in the United States is to fight, in your words, the growing cancer of unreason with reason. And yes. you know, I think that's this wonderful uh, aspirational ideal. But, <laughs> yeah, here's the but. As a political <laughs> communication scholar, you know, there's a lot of us who are going to be really skeptical of that claim, especially in communication, where we see that reason doesn't always come out the way that we think it will. As a matter of fact, in a lot of ways, uh, humans don't act reasonably in communication contexts. So just like right. in economics, oftentimes uh, we see the prescription that bad money drives out good money. Why yes. wouldn't we posit that unreason will drive out reason? So you know, kind of defend that bold prescription. How can we reason with the unreasonable? I would say it's a great question, and it's it's what it's one of the most enigmatic parts of the book. But let me say that public discourse over the course of hundreds of years have always been a combination of rational arguments and an emotional uh, or unreasoned, if you will, uh, feelings and sentiments. That's always been the case. My point is that uh, partially due to the nature of, of media today and, and other factors as well, which we'll get to, it's become crowded out. In other words, the, the, the blend of reason and emotion has become tilted to such a degree to the unreasonable that we have no space left for rational uh, problem solving. Now, let, let me explain why I think that's happened, because I think this is important. You know, we often hear the terms of you know, identity politics and and, and you know, tr tribal politics. What what I think is really being described by those terms is the following uh, phenomena. You know, as, as the human species over th millions of years have developed important survival mechanisms related to in-group and out-group responses. And it's it's for our survival, you know, again, um, eons ago, it was important to have uh, these amygdala-driven responses to folks who would protect us as in-group members and folks we needed to be wary of as out-group members. I mean, we all know that those are primitive drives because if, we if we're at all involved in rooting for sports teams, we feel that. You feel that adrenaline, <laughs> that push. Um, and it's a wonderful thing because, again, these are natural human drives from our ancestry. So it's a wonderful thing to express in in the sports arena. But it's not the best for creating public policy. And I think what, what happens now is that though that's what gets triggered, those amygdala-driven forces, whether it's through social media or even you know cable news media, the, in order to fulfill the incentive business model, which is to get people to watch, it's much easier to trigger those responses than thoughtful dialogue. And this is not, again, this is not new, Trey. It's not like it just happened over the course of the last couple of years. It's been progressing that way. And I think we have to be conscious of it. it it's, so for example, I'll try to, when, when I hear, whether it's on the left or right, arguments that are made which are ridiculing the other side, whether it's people on the left demonizing Trump followers or whether it's people on the the right demonizing, you know, Pelosi or the, the, the socialists, uh, I, I always stop them. And I, you know, because I think that notion of characterization of, 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 of the other point of view and ridiculing it is what we have to reject. And so that would be like one example of being conscious of the fact that it's, even though it may feel good, 
to 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 uh, to you know battle the other side with ad hominem attacks. That's not going to help advance the discussion. Mm. Um, so I, I'm very much in my, in any political dialogue. I really am about respecting and appreciating different points of view. As I say to colleagues on both sides of the aisle, uh, I don't care what your political beliefs are. I, I, I'm open to talking about this if you're willing to have a rational discussion. As soon as we, we you start moving to where emotions are driving the overall discussion into unreasonable territory, where you're not embracing facts and data, that's where I think the conversation devolves. I, I love to hear you say that because I, you know, one of the strengths, I think, of your book, as you put it there, is I want to have a conversation, but I want to have that conversation rationally because that's the way we uh, stop the, 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 the I, I, that's the way that we end What's, up stopping that tribal attack, right? That, you know, where we're right, you're wrong. And I, I loved that, but there was a few places in your book where it kind of seemed like maybe you hedged your bet on that more than kind of what you're saying here. So I'm kind of curious to talk about that for just a second. And, and the sure. area specifically in the book that I was, was curious about is, you talk about how objectivity and science and objectivity and political philosophy are these two separate things. And it seems like you want to give some space for postmodernism in the political philosophy or in the humanities. Uh, and, and maybe I'm either maybe I'm pushing back on that a little bit or maybe I'm asking you a little bit here to kind of say why. Because so how do we have the hard sciences, as you put it, if we don't have an objective philosophy of science? And if we can have that objective philosophy of science to say chemicals uh, and to climate change, why can't we have that philosophy of science in my area of discipline, right? Power and human right. behavior. So were you intending to have that, uh, that kind of hedge there? Am, am I reading that correctly? And if so, why? Uh, it, well, I think, I think it's an important distinction, though, between uh, uh, the sciences at, where there is such a thing as provable objective truths and going back to, you know, from mathematics on it, to, to um, social sciences where there's more, there is by definition more fluidity in viewpoints. Now, I, I will say that uh, for, for, for if you're a pure postmodernist would say that no objective truth exists at all, hmm. that e even things like uh, mathematic and science are con constructs of society. And, you know, it goes to the point of there's no fluidity in truth. I mean, there's no objectivity in truth. There's no such thing as gender. There's no such thing as everything is fluid. And I, I think that that is misguided. I think the the intent of the postmodern movement was to incorporate and be aware of bias and incorporate other perspectives. So especially in the social sciences, I think that there are truths by there. There still is data, as you know. You, I'm sure a lot of the research that you do, Trey, you use data, but but and and then there's the interpretation of the data, and in the social sciences, it's not that there isn't truth. It's the truth is again is the is facts. We interpret that truth based on our own um, potentially bias or other political beliefs, and that's where the line is a bit fuzzy. And well, so I if we but. If, yeah, I'm so sorry. Please finish that thought. I, I thought you were paused. Continue, continue. If we, if we spend all our time in the social sciences debating what is fact versus not, then we're, we'll never get there. So in other words, I would make the argument that what's going on in Arizona today, 
about like this this search for fraud in the election the 17th time this is a case where we're, we're not accepting the data the data are clear but but somehow we're trying to find some other truth and to me that is a microcosm of this problem. Before I, before I finish the thought, the one thing I want to just also mention is that it is interesting that in some ways the field that, that you know you and I are in, in, in whether it's humanities or economics, or it, it, folks who are in the hard sciences tend to be very comfortable with hard lines between truth and interpretation. And in the soft sciences, I think the line is is fuzzier. Go ahead, but I, I interrupted you. No, it's okay. You were not. I had interrupted you, so I, I, I appreciate that thoughtful response. And I, you know, one of the things, and maybe this is my own, um, this is my own academic high horse. But I've, I've I've often I'm always cautious about that kind of distinction that you're drawing. I think really that that the the difference there isn't so much that there is more interpretation in the social sciences. But rather, because we're dealing with people, we apply uh, morality to that. And so a lot of times for my intro students, you know, we'll take a look at data and I'll right. ask them what the data means. And what they're really doing is they're taking a look at the data and then they're imp superimposing it on that, uh, a, a moral position on top of it. Uh, and so that's why I was kind of kind of pushing on that a little bit, because I'm always worried that if we if we give in to the thought that the social sciences can't be rational, if it can't right. be objective, that we end up undoing that enlightenment project. And so that, you know, that, that was part yes. of it. Because as you note, uh, you know, democracy is, um, is, is only going to work if we have kind of objective truth. But of course, that's going to mean objective truth in the political sphere. So that's why I was interested about right. that. It, I think your point's very valid, and certainly um, that that's what you find when you really understand what the Enlightenment's contributions were in the area of political philosophy. Because of course, there is by definition there was some hierarchy of values. You know, for 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 Locke, whether it was uh, you know liberty and and uh, property rights, or whether it was for in Condorcet's world or in, in some of the French radicals, whether it was much more about the right of, of, for access to opportunity, there, there was certainly a hierarchy of values that was overlaid on top of the data. Now, I, I do, because, you know, we've, we've, I, I love this conversation about, you know, the enlightenment rationality, but I also want to get to this key distinction. You've talked about it several times, and it's a key distinction for your whole argument. It's a key distinction for the American schism, for the book. And that is that the enlightenment is not primarily defined by geography. And, you know, for listeners, uh, you kind of go through the book and, and, and many might know this. But one of the ways you can kind of slice, there's a lot of ways you can slice up the enlightenment. But one common way is, is to do it by uh, a geog geography. Where, where were they? What, what was the kind of the country of origin? You right. argue rather that we need to think of the enlightenment as really having two major camps. The, modern enlighten, uh, the moderate Enlightenment theorists and the radical theorists. And so the moderate right. Enlightenment theorists are almost kind of uh, quasi-conservative in your view because they're willing to live in a non-pure democracy and they have a focus on property rights over other kinds of important rights. Now, I was a little surprised to find that you put Locke in that group, but we'll put that aside for a minute because <laughs> one of the things I noticed was while you mentioned uh, most of the major Enlightenment theorists as being moderate, so 
Since the radicals play such an, a crucial portion later in your book, that's the side that you kind of that you side with. Uh, I, I would love to know who are the radicals that we should be looking at, and what distinguishes the radical theorists from their opponents in the Enlightenment. Sure, I mean, for, first of all, I, I I need to mention that that this framework of moderate and radical is not something I invented. It, it, one it comes of from world's... another author. One of his the foremost scholars of the Enlightenment is a guy named Jonathan Israel, uh, and who was at Oxford and then and and Princeton, and he, he's written many uh, academic books on this, and I've read most of them. And so his his framework is very much uh, this notion of the the Enlightenment being distinguished by these two schools. So what I would say is that you know in fact I uh, two years ago I got in touch with him and explained that I thought a lot of his framework of this moderate versus radical was extremely relevant for what was happening in the US. And I, I discussed with him the notion of, of adapting his framework to do investigative analysis of the American schism. So, you know, which, which of course he was very supportive of. He ended up writing, I think you know the intro. Yes, uh, yes. So, so it's, it, but, but let, let's talk about this distinction and why it's so important, because I think it's fundamental. The easiest way to think about it is that you know, m most of the, the moderates, the, and these are a lot, a lot of the big names we know, Voltaire, Rousseau, Locke, they were in a complete, uh, in a complete sense, uh, enlightenment figures in that they embraced science and rationality, and they recognized that the, the civic governing mechanisms of the past hundreds of years had been dominated by uh, a situation that created oppression and left most humans in misery. Uh, but there's, the moderate solution was for fundamentally for people who were enlightened, educated like themselves, to step up and control the abusive powers like monarchy and the nobility. So th their prescription was for enlightened leadership. And um, the difference between them and the radicals were the radicals believed that the only way to sustain a more just society, which that wasn't abusive, uh, that we were, people weren't abused by the, the, the people who were powerful by, based on the birth lottery, whether they were kings or noblemen or whatever. The only way to do that was to have a representative democracy where all people participate. And whereas the moderates felt that because so much of the world at that time, 250 years ago, were uneducated. There was no possible way they, uh, the average uh, uh, person could advocate for their own interests. They didn't know what their interests were. So it was the responsibility of what today we would call the elite to, to govern. Now, so, so one key difference between the two schools is the radicals really embrace the notion of representative democracy. The second important distinction, as I describe in the book, is that the radicals wrote a lot about how, for centuries, they described this collusion between the church and the monarchy and nobility to work together to keep people in place, so to speak, keep people in their social status that they were born into. And, and they they viewed that as a collusion because both uh, those sectors of society, the clergy and the nobility, were privileged and had most of the spoils, if you will. And so because the radicals were so uh, 
interested and investigative for how this evolved, they prescribed that it was fundamentally important that in the civic arena, there be a separation of church and state. In other words, many of the radicals may have been uh, spiritual and religious. Some were deists, which I'll, I'll get into in a minute, but and some were, were probably atheists. But they certainly believe that even the, if you were religious, you they recognized that the spiritual world needed to be separate from the civic world, whereas the moderates really embraced the role of the church. In fact, Voltaire is one of the classic moderates, had a very interesting uh, quote, which and I won't say it in French, because but in English it, it is... <laughs> God, if God didn't exist, we would have to invent him, mm -hmm. meaning that we, we need the church to keep to, to foster morality, to keep people on, on the straight line, so to speak. So the, the moderates very much, in the most part, condoned the church's role in civic society, whereas the radicals, and, and notably this would be Jefferson in the U.S., <clears throat> was so uh, passionate about the need to separate church from state that he famously said, you know, the United States is, is not only about freedom of religion, it's freedom from religion. So that, that, that's some of the examples of the key differences between uh, the, uh, the moderates and the radicals. Now, if you want to talk about specific names, I mean, in, in the U.S., you know, John Adams is, is, would be a great example of a moderate. I mean, he was a very uh, aristocratic gentleman who was very learned. And he never believed in democracy. In fact, the, the moderates eschewed democracy. They felt that there was no way that the average people could govern themselves. So government of the people um, was very troublesome in the sense that the word democracy at that time had a negative connotation. It meant demagogues. It, I mean, the fear on the, matter, on the moderates part was that people who weren't educated could be so easily influenced by someone in a demagogic sense, purporting to be advocating for the people's interests, but was really conniving and treacherous. So yeah, because that view goes all the way back to the idea of kind of Aristotle and, and the framers uh, focus and thought yeah. on kind of Roman uh, uh, Republican systems. You're absolutely right. I agree. Right, exactly. And so they were very concerned. And so for people like John Adams, and I, one of the great examples, of course, is Alexander Hamilton, because Alexander Hamilton, while not born elite, he became he was an he was a genius and he became a, a, a defender or a promoter of what I call the, the, the competence model. He, he knew that creating a workable republic was so complicated that he thought the only way to achieve it is to put the best minds in society at the task. And so for, for, for Hamilton, it wasn't so much that he didn't believe people should have fundamental rights, but he believed the, that only the competent could really govern. And, and so but the Adams uh, and Hamilton coalition of this competence, more aristocratic elite model, which ultimately they brought Washington to their side, was in fact the, the raison d'etre of the Federalist Party, which was, of course, one of our founding early political movements in the U.S. And, uh, and on the other side, you had what became the, the Democratic Republicans, people like Jefferson, Thomas Paine, and, and Benjamin Franklin. And they're all interesting in their own right. But famously, Thomas Paine thought that by the time we got to the Constitution in 1789, that it was a complete uh, a surrender to the power of the old regime. 
in that it didn't give people rights. It, it didn't really advocate for a, a representative demo democratic system where people had a voice in government. From Thomas Paine's perspective, it wasn't a government of the people. And, and Benjamin Franklin uh, uh, felt the same. Jefferson is more complicated because Jefferson, as we know, is one of history's most uh, enigmatic figures for a whole mm. bunch of reasons. But fundamentally, Jefferson's vision as an idealist, and, and I've, I've read some of the great the great biographies of Jefferson by the Jefferson, Jeffersonian scholars, um, but I don't purport to be a Jeffersonian scholar myself. So, you know, it's, it's always a tricky, but I mean, Jefferson was an idealist who believed in the notion of complete decentralization of power, that his model was this agrarian state where everyone had access to their own uh, ability to create a, 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 a life, prosperity that was unfettered by political forces from some distant, faraway place. And that, be it England or Old Britain or be it, uh, you know, the federal government. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was it, it was the decentralization of power, the freedom from government, from religion, that was the motivating force for for Jefferson and many of, of his Democratic Republicans. Now, I, I love that you're kind of connecting that also with the American uh, individuals that you see is latching on to or, uh, or being an extension of the moderate uh, and the radical visions of the Enlightenment. But there's there's a third group that you that that's important in the, in the narrative of your book and that comes important, especially in terms of talking about uh, the era of Trump, and that's the counter Enlightenment. And you sp you spend some time with that. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of backlash historically. But I want to focus here a little bit because you've even moved that direction. Uh, to, to look at it. And you see the, the counter-enlightenment in the United States kind of springing forth historically from the Second Great Awakening. And, and ultimately, I think that you're kind of drawing a line and saying that that counter-enlightenment can, can explain some of the things uh, about uh, Trump and, and the you know, 2016 through 2021. Right. Uh, and I right. was drawn to that part of your your book, Seth, in part because, uh, you know, my, I have uh, in my own religious background comes from that era. Right. So uh, I, I'm part of the Restoration Movement, which uh, that's the, even the origin, the original origins of Oklahoma right. Christian University. Uh, so this is, the, you know, so Jefferson in this era is really important for me. So what makes the counter reformation, excuse me, the counter enlightenment so important and in what ways, and do you really think that Trumpism can be tr traced to that kind of 1804 era of uh, of kind of pushing back against the era uh, of Enlightenment thinking during the framing? Right. Well, it's, that's that's a great question, and I think the Counter Enlightenment has been a force in American society ever since the, the the founding. In other words, it wasn't only in Trumpian years that Counter Enlightenment forces became quite dominant. The way I describe it in the book is the counter-enlightenment kind of overlaid on top of this radical moderate split with unpredictable effects. And and the ir irony, of course, is that during our founding was probably the period of American history that was the most secular, because most of the founders, whether they were moderate or radical, tended to be uh, advocates for separating religion from the, from the civic arena, um, Washington as well. So so what, what, what do I mean by the counter-enlightenment? First of all, the counter-enlightenment doesn't, it's not a pejorative term. It's, it's, it's it, it, although it, sometimes it, it comes across that way because when it's explicitly rejecting rationality. So, so the counter-enlightenment 
is is probably best first understood as counter movement to the Enlightenment back in the in the 18th century. So after the Enlightenment exploded in Europe and in the United States, the forces that were most threatened, notably the church and uh, the powerful, the, the nobility, many members of the aristocracy and nobility, they pushed back in various ways. And in, and one of the ways that they fought the Enlightenment movement was by, by insisting that faith was really the driver of, of human society. Of, of Faith is what separated humans from from you know from the beast so to speak and faith has, has played a huge important role in in american society over the centuries and in many ways it has been incredibly positive if you look at the influence of the of, of churches over in, in local society uh, it, it's incredible how much good they've done and of course there 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 also are a lot of negative consequences of the power of religion in our society but the point being is that the counter enlightenment, whether it's back during the in the communist years when, you know, Billy Graham famously associated American democratic freedom with with uh, evangelical Christianity, which was, I think, the beginning of the kind of more modern evangelical movement um, or back, to, as I referred to the Second Great Awakening, where Americans were searching for a, a new spirituality as different sects of Protestantism, of Protestantism um, became quite prevalent during that period, it had huge benefits in that it brought um, women into the political, into the civic discussion because women were playing a large role at first in the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, by getting involved in their communities and, and speaking up against things like slavery or, uh, uh, famously temperance because there, there was abuse of alcohol to a great degree in the 1800s. And so w women spoke about about the temperance movement. My point being is that the counter enlightenment had some tremendously beneficial effects. And I think that in that sense, faith has been a huge uh, motivator of a lot of good in society. But when, when it goes to a point where the counter enlightenment is articulating a position that's against reason or rejecting reason altogether as it has at various points in our society. And I would argue certainly in recent in recent years in, in the Trump era, that's happened more frequently. Then I think the counter enlightenment becomes uh, uh, um, non-productive or, or, or destructive, if you will. And so I think that it's really important to pay attention to the, these counter enlightenment forces, which can be of many different sorts. And and what uh, you know what, what ultimately what effect they're having on our civic debate? I, I, a very thoughtful answer. You know, and I, I want to uh, touch on that just a little bit more. There's kind of two areas I want to touch on here, and one of those is I, I deeply agree with kind of the bottom line outcome that you're getting there at. In that, and I, I agreed as I was reading, and that I think that uh, often. That evangelical Christians have imposed their particular view of Christianity on the framers. And you even kind of talk about the symbolism in the book. You didn't get that to your answer. We'll save that for you. Uh, but but I, I think that kind of plays into your answer here. You know, uh, Washington yes. bringing down, you know, the law, the Constitution. Yeah. Uh, right. But I wonder a little bit here. It's probably important for your listeners. Oh, say that one more sorry. time. I'm so sorry, Seth. 
I was going to say before, I mean, that's it, such a, a, a vivid, I'm glad you brought it up. It's sort of like there's this, there's this um, aspect of the Second Great Awakening that's really important that you mentioned, which is, uh, was recasting the history of the U.S. in spiritual terms. And that mm -hmm. famous painting you're referring to is is a, a parallel to, to God handing the tablets to Moses, which is this this godlike figure handing the Constitution down to Washington, and 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 that 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 image became a kind of a revisionist version of our founding. But the reason why it's so important today to think to, to mention that I'm so glad you brought it up, Trey, is that the framers meant for our Constitution to be malleable to change with the times. So the notion of God handing it down, like the law, is completely contrary to that. And, and, and you know, I think to some degree, I mean, the last time we amended the Constitution was in the 70s. You know, we've somehow believed that the Constitution is God's word. And, and that would be an example, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up, of where counter, a counter-enlightenment impulse is really inhibiting progression. Well, and that's where I wanted to get to because, you know, one view of that era, uh, and, and, and you don't quite seem to hit this, so I'm kind of curious to, to see what you'll say. You know, you kind of put the Declaration of the Independence and the Constitution into a singular bucket uh, that are about the Enlightenment. But and an alternative view argues that in many ways the Declaration of Independence is in fact the true expression of Enlightenment thinking. And that the Constitution yes. is a kind of a, a concern, almost, I mean, it's not exactly a, a, a complete counter, but it's a conservative response to what they saw as the overreach of that Jeffersonian uh, Enlightenment-laced. I mean, it's again, I mean, Locke's writing is in, in large part the inspiration for the Declaration of Independence. You take right. out the word property and you put in the in pursuit of happiness and, and you right. go from Locke to Jefferson. So right. what do you say about this idea that perhaps part of what explains this is the fact that the Constitution itself might be a bit of a conservative reaction to the Enlightenment? Would you agree with that? Does that fit into your argument here in the book? But before you answer, we're just going to take a quick break, Seth, uh, for a few words from our sponsor. Yes, I mean, 100 percent. And the way I frame it in the book, although maybe it doesn't come across as much as it should, is that. The Declaration of Independence, uh, the, the spirit of 76, was all about uh, an idealist notion of breaking away from breaking away and, and, and achieving freedom and liberty. It was about breaking bonds. The Declaration of Independence was a radical enlightenment document, whereas the Constitution was much more of a conservative compromise. And the way I describe it in the book is that the era of the spirit of 76 what was about breaking away and achieving liberty, uh, breaking away from, from Britain. But what happened soon after the war ended was that the American founders had to build a government. They had to figure out what 13 colonies that had separate ethos and culture, how are they going to work together and have a foreign policy? How are they going to pay for the war? So the pr there was a bunch of practical concerns that became extremely important in the period after 1776 through the writing of the Constitution, which is what let, led to a lot of the compromises that, that ultimately resulted. I mean, 
James Madison, who is the primary author of the Constitution, although, of course, the, 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 the convention had many voices and Alexander Hamilton uh, was was equally important, I think, in devising kind of the, the, the system of a federal government, uh, ended up requiring enormous compromises that that moved the framework, if you will, closer to what would be considered a moderate Enlightenment stance. What do I mean by that? Well, it doesn't have, there, well, there are elements of representative democracy, although, of course, it was for white men with property at the time. The Constitution is far from uh, a egalitarian democracy. Senators were not, uh, you know, the president was elected by senators. They're what the senators really um, were not elected from the people, but from state houses. So there, there were there was a feeling, uh, not a feeling. There, there was evidence in the Constitution of a much more moderate view, and and that became a, a consequence of this of this need for compromises um, that the moderates really uh, inserted into the process. So going to your question overall, I agree with the declaration was was this radical enlightenment uh, uh, um, ideal. And the Constitution was the first real attempt to make it come to reality, to execute the ideal. And invariably, there's messiness in the details. So so the execution was quite complex. And I think what happened between 1776 and, and 1789 was mm -hmm. that all these pressing problems required solutions. And as we often say, the adage says, for every there's a thousand critics for every playwright. All of a sudden, we had to build something anew, and it required these compromises to work. And that's where the pragmatists like Hamilton ended up becoming so important, uh, fighting against the idealists like Jefferson. Now, Madison, in many ways, was the the architect of the Constitution that 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 tried to thread the needle, if you will, and balance both sides. But the Constitution would never have been ratified had it not been for the Bill of Rights, which was trying to correct for the fact that, to, your, to use your term, Trey, the Constitution was too conservative. It didn't. It didn't withhold. It didn't uphold the the spirit of the Declaration, which is why the Bill of Rights ended up becoming the way to ensure that it still had that 1776 promise. But there are obvious things in the Constitution that are are are, are contrary to to the, the, the spirit of the declaration and the, and therefore the radical enlightenment. Well, and, and right. part of that, I saw that you, you had mentioned earlier, Jefferson, another near and dear for me, you know, Jefferson himself argued that we effectively had two revolutions that we had the 1776, but then you have the second revolution uh, in, in 1800 when he, when he, when he comes to power and, and we, we're going to kind of undo some of that, uh, uh, conservatism, or maybe as you were putting it, that threading of the needle, that pragmatism that perhaps had a, had a conservative, uh, bent. And so I, I kind of wonder, do you see that as being maybe the, as being kind of a, a potential promise that can move in that direction because of Jeffersonian. Again, you mentioned him a little bit more in your answers as we've been talking. I just wondered what you thought about that. Well, so, so there was two, there's two things I would say, it's, and it's fascinating. The, the, the real failure of Jefferson's presidency was, was not to figure out a way to abolish slavery, which had, you know, the, the founders always thought that slavery would go away somehow. And they kind of punted on the issue recognizing how counter-enlightenment the, the whole concept of slavery was. And of course, the irony being that Jefferson and many others were slave owners. 
But but famously, you know, when when it came, even though Jefferson had abolished the slave, the international slave trade, which was allowed only a certain number of years after the Constitution was written, um, he ultimately allowed slavery to be extended to the Louisiana territories. And and so in that sense, you know, I think I think it was really one of those pivotal moments when what had become institutionalized and and solidified this institute this horrific institution was was inextricably linked to the american identity um and that's why also by the way just going back to the the, the importance of the declaration why what what lincoln was so brilliant at gettysburg was his his description of the fact that the constitution as it was didn't fulfill the promise of the declaration and therefore needed to be amended. And and so what Lincoln did with 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 kind of his eloquence was to raise this the emit the preeminence of the declaration as the the creed of America and the constitution as merely an attempt at its execution. So I think you know you've got to look at at at, at the Jeffersonian presidency um, which was fascinating in its own right because it, it it failed on many levels in that post in that early part of the of the 19th century, but and that which of course led up to to um, many trends. One of which was Jacksonian populism, and ultimately to to uh, the Civil War. Now I want to continue to move this forward because you know we don't want to spend all of our time in any one part of your book because it it, it is uh, you know worthy to get to your prescriptions as you move forward. And so I, I love how you then you're kind of tracing these lines. We, I mean, now we've been talking about it in terms of the era of the framers. How does the these camps and the Enlightenment and the Counter Enlightenment fit into the constitutional framework, and then moving forward? And part of what your later uh, theme is, and we mentioned this earlier, was this idea that we again we have to return to rationality by returning to the objective, returning to the facts. And so there were a couple of spots later where I, I, I was scratching my head a little bit. I was actually going to ask the question one way, but you kind of almost agreed with me in the introduction. So I'm really curious about this now, is that uh, you mentioned, for example, that the data you say later uh, is that the United States is becoming a, pl- a plutocracy uh, because both parties have kind of aligned around neoliberal or, or globalist outcomes. And in, in your turns, the data, as you say, quote, the data clearly demonstrates uh, a worsening conditions uh, for people in that in that measure. And I was actually going to kind of push back a little bit and say, well, but there's a lot of ways in which people are doing much better off. But you started the show by that. So I was a little bit curious right. then. Uh, I wasn't expecting you to take that track at the beginning of the show. How uh-huh. do you reconcile then? I mean, you, obviously, we agreed on the data after all, right? You know, uh, life expectancy right. going up. Extreme poverty has gone down. Uh, right. All of these measures show that, as a matter of fact, it's one of the reasons I think the Enlightenment does well. So this this portion of the book struck me as a little unusual that you spent so much time talking about this kind of the, the problems of globalization is forcing people into poverty. It seemed a little counterintuitive to me. So talk a little bit about that. Well, so, so uh, from an economics perspective, it's actually uh, and, and it's quite interesting. I mean, I think in some ways the the real winners of globalization were uh you know, millions, if not billions of poor people, like, for example, all over Asia, uh, who have now who now are, are earning a living income. But so, but in relative sense, some of the losers were uh, 
working class uh, uh, people in the United States because they're they didn't in the last 50 years, they, they netted about the same. They didn't get ahead as much as the wealthy or, let's say, the, the extremely poor in other mm-hmm. parts of the world. And that's a lot due to globalization. But so, th- so without getting into the, the kind of eco- the nutty economics, macro <laughs> yeah. and microeconomics, what's happened, I think the point is being is that whenever in the U.S., whenever too much power accrues to the wealthy, we all, the, their interests diverge from that of the, of the mass population. I mean, if, and, and that's kind of we're at, we're, we're, we've been increasingly heading toward that point over the last 30 years as the distribution of, of wealth in the country has become more and more tilted. And, and by the way, as, as you know, having read the book, I'm a complete believer in capitalistic meritocracy. I'm not, I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not arguing for some kind of a quality of outcome system. But that being said, I think I think uh, as more po- as more power accrues to the the very wealthy, their interests diverge from most citizens. So they become less interested in democracy because they want to hold on to their power, and they become met- less interested in providing some notion of equality of opportunity to the masses. And I think we you know we're at that point. This happened, by the way, before the Progressive Era, which is what led to the Progressive Era in the early part of the 20th century was the realization that big business and whether it was steel barons or railroads had accumulated too much power. And there needed to be controls that ensured that there was access to some of the, the, the you know, the public goods in society, information, um, that the government could provide. And, and so, you know, I go into the book in some detail about in a capitalist system, what in fact the role of government is, which I believe is 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 very specific, but it's certainly, it, part of it is certainly to ensure uh, access to equality of opportunity and education for, would be a great example of that. Like going back to the French radicals, they recognized how important education was if they were going to fulfill their vision for a representative democracy. A democracy requires an educated populace. Well, one could argue that over the last 30 years, access to uh, quality education in the US has declined pre- precipitously. This has been written about uh, from many of the current writers writing about meritocracy, whether it's it's the meritocracy trap by Markowitz or, or other books that describe that, you know, what we currently have in the U.S. is a far cry from a true meritocracy in the sense of equal, providing equal opportunity. So that's why I think this 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 movement towards a plutocracy is very dangerous. And I, I think one of the great examples that I think of an issue that was that was you know misguided was the Citizens United case, which which gives like unlimited power to corporations, which corporations, as we know, is a is a, a basically a, a construct that was created for liability and tax issues. But the notion of corporations having the right to free speech, I think, is a stretch. So I appreciate what you say there in your answer and part of what you answered there, Seth, and, and that you get again into your book a lot is you're talking about the importance of education. And I'm very sympathetic on that front. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I might be even a little more radical than you on that one in the sense that I really do think that one of the key elements here is a civic education. I, I don't think we get a lot of a civic education. I, I can't tell you how many uh, students, freshmen who come in, and I've taught all across the, the country, and, and they don't even have kind of the basics down of, of how the system works. But of course, 
another way that we get at that civic education is through uh, engagement in society, that kind of civic community. Yeah. And that's another element that you talk about in the book. You argue that globalization uh, has also, not only has it kind of has created which uh, the, that plutocracy, as you were talking about, but it's also created a loss of civic community in America. Now, there is a counter thesis to this, and I didn't see you attack this. I was kind of curious what your thought on this was. Of course, the other potential reason for the decline of civic community, and this is an argument that comes from Robert Putnam famously in Bowling Alone, was that it's not money or inequality that ended these civic institutions because, of course, they were strong during some of our, our, our frequent times of inequality during the Depression, for example. But instead, it is really around the design of our in, uh, entertainment and around the design of our social institutions, the way we interact. So we don't have the Rotary Club because we don't get together with people. We we hang out on the internet and watch, uh, you know, Marvel movies ad nauseum on Disney Plus. Although and then Put Putnam was just talking about television, but we've taken it forward since then. So right. uh, what, what do you kind of argue to those scholars? Because that is a big claim there that say, well, really, it's more about that kind of communication. And again, we'll want to bring that up again because communication plays a role in the end of your book as well. So what do you say to kind of the, the Putnam scholars who say, well, I agree with you, but I don't know if it's necessarily globalization. It's really kind of these media problems that create a lack of civic institutions. Well, there's no question that that interaction, social interaction in in the digisphere is quite different than it is in person. And so I think there's, you know, Putnam's case is strong in that regard, especially when you extend it to where we are today. It, 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 the group more in common has done a lot of research that shows that, um, uh, so for, first of all, so that 77 percent of, of, of Americans believe are, are part of what they call the exhausted majority, meaning that they're tied to the left and right screaming at each other. But it turns out that when pe that they've done research that shows that when people have physical interaction in a room or in a public space or they, they, there's a much greater sense of understanding uh, the other point of view and empathy than there is based on digital interaction alone. So there's, you know, so I guess I guess there's no question that that element, which is isolationist or is is inhibiting true human interaction is it is definitely a cause of some of our ills but that, that that being said there's no question that that you know some of globalization that has devastated certain parts of our country so you know i i guess the point about globalization is that it was so unequal it, mm -hmm. it's it's helped cities but rural areas and, and and non-urban areas across the country have been so devastated by the loss of manufacturing as we move to a service economy that a lot of what you know people in those societies remember as being vibrant about their childhoods, whether it was you know Memorial Day parades down Main Street or whether it was different civic arena clubs or even churches and institutions, many of those have gone away because of, of this incredible economic hardship. And it's not only in the civic arena. I mean, many small towns that had their own church or, or denomination because of of uh, of economic realities the church may have closed and the, and combined with another another parish or another church somewhere else in a far far in a place that's further away from their town so there's been a tremendous uh depression if you will or economic hardship has unequally affected rural america 
And so I think that's that was the argument that I was trying to make for why globalization has um, has, you know, been had such a negative effect on the current uh, economic reality of opportunity or, or, or access to opportunity in today's in today's America. Now, and, and from all that, your argument then progresses to say that Trump, what he was effectively able to do, what makes it seem surprising, but yet shouldn't be, is that he was able to use these true uh, disparities, this true objective uh, impoverishing and use it for his advantage. And as a matter of fact, you seem to have a, a kind of a critique for the left in, on this front in the sense that they aren't willing to recognize the actual underlying problem there. And therefore, that's why kind of Trump could create these uh, wedge issues. So talk a little bit here because right. you do spend a lot of time on Trump. So how do these yes. structural problems lead to the wedging, as you put it, of Trump? Well, what, 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 what started to happen over the course of the last 30 years is both political parties, both mainstream parties, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, uh, left out the working class American uh, rural voter and didn't didn't address their needs. I mean, one of the great examples of it. I mean, the, the traditional Republican Party, which became a party of, of the wealthy and and uh, both well, the different factions, but a lot of the wealthy. But the, the Democratic Party became the party of the kind of the educated technocrats and urban centers and left out the working class. And so as a consequence, both parties abandoned so much of the of, of the country. Now, one of the great examples of that is found in the aftermath of the recession. So, the great the great recession. Here's an ex here's an example where most of the, the the economic hardship that was rained on America by the corporate elite and Wall Street um, was, in fact, not not only were these companies bailed out, but nobody was held accountable for the fact that Main Street uh, was so poorly uh, affected, was so tragically affected. Many people lost their homes, went upside, on their, upside down on their mortgages. And yet the, the corporate elite and, and financial interests got away unscathed. So I, I think the, 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 the message from 2008 and 9 and its aftermath was that, you know, Americans who played by the rules and worked really hard got no bailout. But th those that were cheating the system and ripping everyone off did. And so I think it further alienated the working classes in America from and made them realize that neither party had their interests in mind. Um, and it, this also became quite uh, illustrated by some of the comments that whether it was, you know, Hillary Clinton's deplorables or Mitt Romney's 47 percent of the country are takers, they felt uh, disdained. By the elite classes, both Republicans and Democrats, and Trump's brilliance, as as uh, in terms of his his ability to sense this, was was understanding that rage and making the elite classes the demon, being able to kind of tap into it and tell people that had felt forgotten, people who had sat out the last couple of presidential elections because they felt that neither Obama nor McCain spoke to them, nor Romney. So they, they weren't involved, really. They, they stopped voting. Trump tapped into that in a way that the media elite completely missed, and that was so powerful, because not only did he recognize their hurt, but he made their disdain for the elite okay. He gave them license 
to be able to, to disdain those classes of society that had mocked them for so long. So there was almost a, a kind of a revenge or a revanchism that uh, tr Trump tapped into by saying, you know, you forgotten Americans will be forgotten no longer. And that was both working class people, it was rural Americans, it was Christian Americans that felt Christianity was under attack. So there were many social and economic factors that, that made many Americans feel rejected by their own country and that um, Trump so effectively tapped into. Now, you know, I was I, I thought that that was a, a thoughtful analysis. And as I was reading through that, I kept thinking to myself, well, could it the same thing kind of be said a little bit about kind of uh, Bernie Sanders and his uh, and, and his movement that it, it's tapping into maybe a similar uh, elite yes. ignoring us? And ultimately, I mean, one of the things it seems that you're arguing is, is that maybe that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, they're right in the sense that they're right that uh, who is getting harmed in a sense. Now, probably not the, 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 the Christian group that you were bringing up in, in terms of Trump, not all of the alienated groups, but at least in the economic sense that Bernie and yes. Trump are right. Now, although you don't ever seem to go in that direction, I mean, is, is part of kind of what you're getting at when you get later in the book an idea that that we need to kind of skew trade and globalization for workers here. You, you, I, you never kind of kind of right. seemed to, 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 I was just curious about that. You never kind of seemed to put a bow on that, at least for me, maybe I missed that. So I was curious about your argument there. Well, well first of all, there's definitely, I, I definitely speak in the book about how Trump and Sanders were, were flip sides to the same coin. I mean, mm -hmm. and in fact, there's a lot of research that says that, uh, that when you, you know, discussions with, of former auto workers and other other manufacturing industry um, participants showed that in the in the build up to 16, they were considering Trump and Sanders, but rejecting all the mainstream candidates. So there's no question that Trump's populism uh, and 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 you know Bernie Sanders, uh, you know the one percent, they were they were elements of the same theme. Now, to to your second question about prescriptions, I think. There are, there's a combination of things that need to be done that, that will especially affect those that have been left behind economically. And that's about uh, providing for the government playing a role to provide more what I would call pre-distribution, access to uh, resources, whether it's education or whether it's asset ownership that um, that all Americans are, are should benefit from. So, you know, obviously, whenever we get into the classic discussions of uh, public policy related to uh, equity. We talk about redistribution, taxation, and there's no question that I think there's some there's some truth to that. Our our tax system has become too regressive, so I think there probably is some solution that involves uh, taxation, increasing certain taxes, and redistributing that money for train worker training and education. I think that's all true. But I also think there are other ways to get at this problem that include um, much more access to early life opportunities and training, education that creates different um, uh, investments for public goods like infrastructure uh, and like information superhighways that can provide uh, information to a broader array of Americans. So, there, so I do talk in the in the end of the book about some prescriptive elements. I, I think the prescriptions. Uh, trait to resolve this incredible uh, need for access to opportunity uh, across all Americans 
is not only things like some redistribution, which I think is merited given how regressive our tax system has been, but also pre-distributive efforts like much, much better access to education at earlier stages in life, but even at work training later in life. If you look at other democratic republics like Germany, they spend a lot more time investing in worker training for industries that have out displaced workers and providing them new skills. So I, th I think these pre-distributive mechanisms uh, can be very important in redressing some of the inequities that have been built up in society and that we've allowed to, to go to, to an extreme in America. Um, one example that I mentioned in the book is the baby bonds program, which has been quite, quite researched by think tanks, that shows that the government allowing for a accrual of an investment that's that's set aside at birth uh, and can be used for education or starting a business is economically quite uh, interesting and quite attractive and is not that costly. And, uh, you know, asset ownership is something that generally both Republicans and Democrats can get behind, as is things like infrastructure investment. So I do believe there are prescriptions that can address the problem we're talking about of so much of rural America left behind. Now, another part of the prescription, and I guess in the prescription, sometimes I, I, I guess sometimes in your prescriptions, I was, I felt a little bit shorted. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just curious about that. And one of them where that was the case was, again, I, this is kind of focusing on, on my area communication. You talk about how sure. in modern America, we had this problem in the, of the, the modern media including you mentioned right. the recently ended Rush Limbaugh show. And a number of times I loved your little quips about how, look, it doesn't matter how many times we shout on Twitter, it's not going to fix anything. Right. <laughs> and and right. I, I love and I appreciate that. And I think you're right. Earlier in your answers, you were even talking about that relationship, uh, how people yes. interact in person is so fundamentally different uh, from the way yeah. that we're going to engage online. As a matter of fact, when I first started my academic uh, career set. I'll never forget when I had to put my own research into work. I just had some of the, I, I, it was the first time we were, I was teaching online and I just had the, some of the nastiest student interactions I had ever experienced. And I couldn't figure out why in this online class, why, why did all the nasty people just take the online class? And, and when I kind of applied the research of my own political communication area, what I, what I kind of realized was I was just this kind of impersonal thing. And so we created some right. videos and other things. They almost kind of got to meet me. And man, did right. that ever change the way that students interacted, right? A lot of yeah. that nasty went away because it wasn't exactly being in person, but there was, I wasn't just a faceless machine anymore. And, right. and so you talk about that in the book. So, but I, I guess my question though is, is, you know, in this era, in the communication era that we find ourselves, and we can't be rational on Twitter, as you rightfully point out, it's difficult to be rational in the modern American communication because it's all about audience. Uh, right. But if everybody wants to listen uh, to, to, to talking heads yell at each other, and if everybody talks on, uh, on Twitter, how do we get to the rational if that's where everybody is in, in, a, in a communication okay. sense? I think it's, it's a that's a, a great question and one that I've thought a lot about. Well, and there's, there's two directions that I think are important to mention. The first one is that, you know, free information and dissemination of objective truth is a public good in a classic economic sense, meaning that it's like, like parks and roads, meaning like when consumption of it uh, by one person doesn't 
doesn't decrease the availability to someone else. It's a, it's a, it's available to be um, joined by uh, an unlimited supply, a limitless amount of, of consumers without depleting its power. And at the same time, because it's a public good, it's something that industries or businesses alone won't adequately invest in, which is why the government has a role in a classic economics uh, d definition. So the reason why I mention this is if you go back to before Reagan deregulated uh, the, the news in the U.S., one of the requirements was that that air airwaves, which were publicly owned, that people who broadcast on airwaves, companies that did, had to provide access to rational uh, points of view on both sides and that that was a requirement of news. Of course, that went away with deregulation in the 80s. But and I'm not saying that we should go back to that. But I, do, I think it's important to start the conversation uh, or the answer to your question by recognizing that public information, is, that information flow and, and a sharing of, of objective truth is a public good and we need to foster it. Now, then the question becomes, can we do it without government regulation or with the least amount of government regulation possible? And I think, or so said another way, are there ways for the private sector to be motivated in a different way, incentivized in a different way than we are today, which is a, a system which motivates, I would argue, attention, screaming, regardless of merit, you know, wh whether it's true or not. And I think there are ways that um, private the private interests can create a better mousetrap that might have different incentives. Let me give a few examples. You know, we talk at nauseam about Twitter and, and Facebook and these platforms. And in some ways, these, these platforms are enormously powerful in the way they decentralize or democratize um, voice. In other words, anyone can contribute. And, and that's great. But one of the things that they, they also do is they create anonymity, which might not be as healthy. And in other words, people, when you're on Facebook or Twitter, you never know if the person who's espousing something is a real person or is a, a bot in, in Moscow or, or some other, you know, uh, um, fake, fake persona that's been created by uh, nefarious uh, forces at work or people trying to influence through through, uh, um, you know, non-authentic premises. So I, I think. One of the interesting questions is, would simply create, imagine a business idea of creating a social platform where authentication is a requirement for entry. Just, just like today when you want to drive, you have to give a driver's license. It, on this new social platform, if you want to participate, you have to be authenticated as a real human being <laughs> and not as some a new Anonymous. kind of check mark. Yes, this is a person. <laughs> this is a real person. Because I, I think so, half a good part of the problem is the anonymity that you know, let's use an, a parallel for a second and talk about our constitution of knowledge. You know, one of the most powerful elements of what is true as what we think is true is today. It comes from this process we have of augmenting our quote unquote constitution of knowledge. How do we do it? Well, we have a very wide funnel. Anyone could pitch ideas into the constitution of knowledge, but those ideas are because of specialization and expertise and, and they get peer reviewed and, and they get criticized and, and, and proven untrue. And only when something it may have entered a wide funnel in the, this knowledge constitution, but only if it can go through the rigor of review and critique 
could have come out the other side of something accepted as true, like the earth is round or you know whatever truth you may have. So my point being is that in social media and in media in general, we have a wide funnel is okay, but we have to figure out a way to get better at validating what's really true and not through some form of, of decentralized peer review. So I think one way of doing that is through authentication. And imagine a, pro, a social media platform which has authenticated users only. And then imagine an incentive system that, that incentivizes not only loudness or screaming or what who gets the most or points of view that are backed by fact. Now, that becomes tricky because who who's who's the arbiter of what's factual or not? So I recognize these are not easy things to achieve, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to create a, um, a, you know interaction platforms in the digital space and in media in general that have better authentication of, of real people and that have some incentive system to be based on truth. Now, I, I, I think there may also be some role for regulation. I mean, it may be that government does have a role to play in ensuring some of these things. But my, my overall point being is that I think it is definitely true that the, the, the digital space can be very harsh and very bitter because of anonymity. And we ultimately will need to have more personal interaction regardless of what happens to media. But I think media also has to evolve. And we need we need some better incentive systems in both broadcast media and 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 um, digital media. I think the closest that we get to a more balanced approach is in print media. Uh, of course, it's easier with long form print. In fact, one of the things I argue in the book is that if we can't agree on a way of better regulating political advertising because it's so out of control, we should ban it entirely except for print. We should allow politicians to make their case in print and let people read their points of view. It's almost it's very similar to the argument that Neil Postman made uh, in, in, in uh, amusing ourselves to death, where there's some things just so fundamentally different about having to read or having that print. That's a that that's a, 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 a I can I can understand that, uh, Seth. Now, you know, you have been you have uh, thankfully been with us a long time on the show. I really appreciate all of your time. But before we finish, I did want to give you last opportunity for. For everybody who listens or everybody who reads your book, if they're going to take away something, what what for you is the thing? I want everybody who has read this book, this is what I'd want them to, to leave with. Yeah. Here's the thing. What would that be, Seth? Great. It's, I'm, I love this question, Trey, and I, I was hoping that you would ask it. So the, the book seems to point out this schism between the moderate and radical enlightenment we were talking about earlier. Uh, and, you know, as if like one side is right and and that understanding the differences is really important, which I think it is. But but there's another there's another schism outside of the moderate radical. And that's the schism between enlightenment overall and unreason. So so what I want people to take away from the book is whatever their political ideology is, whether it's more moderate conservative or conservative or or liberal, as if your argument is based in reason and fact and observation, I think it's valid. And what we should reject is not moderate or radical enlightenment philosophies. They both have are, have validity and they both have contributed to our uh, heritage as Americans. What we need to reject is complete unreason. We need to re-inject 
a, a respectful, reasonable civic discourse by rejecting complete counter enlightenment approaches that don't allow for our enlightenment inheritance of reason and rationality. So that's what I hope people will take away, that in our modern society, the enlightenment is not a bad word. It's our, our inheritance. Our heritage from that era is uh, is about uh, having a respectful dialogue. And thri a democracy thrives on divergent views. And the U.S. always has uh, thrived on divergent, ruse, divergent views. But if we reject truth altogether, democracy as a form of government is doomed. And we will not be able to pass on our democratic institutions to our to the next generation. Trey, you asked me what I want you uh, readers to take away from the book, and one of the most important lessons is that it's not so much the moderate versus radical schism that needs to we need to focus on, but it's it's that we need to embrace reason and rationality against the notion of counter-enlightenment thought that rejects those things. So that our democracy has always thrived on divergent views on how the U.S. should be run. And it will continue to thrive if we have a good discussion of different political, political views. But if we reject objective truth altogether, democracy as a form of government is doomed and we will not be able to pass it on to the next generation. And I think, for example, this podcast about the politics guys is a great example of part of what what is part of the solution a forum to discuss these things in a little bit more depth with a little bit more reason and discussion than you would typically see on many forms of media so i i applaud what you guys are doing here to help fight uh unreason with reason it's a potent point seth thank you so much for joining me on the politics guys this has been so great, Trey. Thank you so much for taking the time, and I'm I'm looking forward to it. Well, uh, uh, listeners, I want to say again, we have been talking with Seth David Radwell. The book we've been discussing is American Schism, and it comes out on June 29th, uh, published by Greenleaf Book Group Press. Thanks again, Seth. Uh, Politics Guys listeners, thank you guys so much for listening to this show. We hope that maybe that we're a little bit of the answer to, to Seth's yes. schism that we're that we're hitting on that. So, Seth, I hope that we maybe inspire. Say, maybe there's a little bit out there who's trying to kind of talk into that media. And I would ask listeners, if you're listening to the show, as you know, thank you guys so much. This is a this is a labor of love. You know, we we don't do it for any other reason than you guys. Um, and we would love for you all to be supporters of the show because that's what makes this kind of longer form uh, media possible. And you get benefits for doing that. As you guys know, uh, supporters have the opportunity to talk with Mike and Ken and myself and others on our Discord channel. Uh, and you can gain that by becoming a supporter. If you want to become a supporter, all you have to do uh, is check out the Politics Guys Patreon page at patreon.com slash politicsguys. Or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. And, and you can join me again on a future show again by heading to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you'd like to share about the interview, please, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on the dreaded Twitter at politics guys. The executive producers of the politics guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Nathan Solnowski, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkinson, and Ryan Beasley. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. I hope you'll join us next time.